Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke for you. What have you been up to, Jamie? Not much. Went for a job interview the other day. How'd you get on? It was all right. The guy asked me what I thought my biggest weakness was. And what did you say? Told him it was honesty. Doesn't sound like much of a weakness to me. I don't give a monkey's what you think. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, a culture show that helps you win your week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Jamie White and Matthew O'Toole of pop band Etu Bruce. It's almost a skit. That'll help break the ice. They're touring the West Coast next month. Later in the show, we'll chat with writer Chuck Klosterman about grappling with villains in his new book, I Wear the Black Hat. Also coming up, we hear from metal band Death Heaven, from comedian Tig Notaro. Plus, you'll hear music legend Herb Albert make this noise while giving us advice about etiquette. It's a paradox. Yes. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. George Zimmerman says he will not take the stand in his own murder trial. Democratic proposal that would have extended current rates on subsidized student loans failed to make it through the Senate. Jahar Sarnayev has pleaded not guilty to all of the 30 charges that he's currently facing. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Sadie Stein. She is deputy editor of literary magazine The Paris Review. Sadie, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I was very intrigued by a story I saw on the Atlantic's website, in which I learned that uh, a gentleman in Australia is attempting to create sort of an ampersand, but for the word the. Wow. It's <laughs> so like a new symbol. Yeah. it's it's It looks like a capital T and a small h attached. Okay. And he wants to popularize this. So the is, is one of the most popular words. So this would shorten our... Exactly. It would, it would I, I guess, make, our lives make easier. life easier. He felt that the time was ripe because of texting and especially Twitter, whereas we know we have yeah. uh, character limits. Are we sure that this guy doesn't work for Twitter? Is this like some sort of stealth advertising for Twitter? Apparently he's... <laughs> A restaurateur in his real life. What is his, then what is his problem? Like, why does he care so much? Was he was, it, was it, his family harmed by the word the at some point? He's I don't an know. advocate for the. It's he's a positive a, thing. It's not a negative. Yeah, he's pro the. He wants to shorten it. He wants to take the word out and replace it with a symbol. He wants it to have its own symbol because the ampersand because it's, is because the symbol for the word yeah. and, and and isn't even one of the most popular words. He wants to elevate it by giving it a symbol, basically. Exactly. And I think he feels this would maximize its usage because it is true. I do find myself dropping the the article more often than not hey, oh, okay. yeah. in tweets. Hey, there's a symbol for words that don't exist, like the ellipses. So why not a symbol <laughs> for the word? There you so. go. Sadie Stein, wow. thanks for the small talk. Thanks for having me. Ampersand now, time for th- cocktail, I guess. Ellipsis. <laughs> Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a thundercloud that rains booze. Hmm. See what symbol the weatherman uses for that. A sword. Um, A cocktail umbrella. A cocktail sword through a cloud. (laughs) (laughs) First, the history part. This week back in 1946, an article of clothing shocked the world. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. If Sports Illustrated existed in 1900... Its swimsuit issue would not have been especially titillating. Back then, the standard lady's swimsuit wasn't much different than her everyday clothes. It was basically a dress, plus a hat, and even shoes. By World War II, with fabric and short supply, slightly more revealing two-piece numbers were considered okay. 
But even they didn't expose anything so scandalous as a belly button. But post-war, a couple of Frenchmen sensed the world was ready to loosen up. The first of them, one Jacques Heim, designed a two-piece so tiny he called it l'atome, the atom. But Heim was one-upped by his countryman, Louis Riard. In July 1946, he unveiled an even tinier suit, the bikini, named after a Pacific Island atoll where, four days earlier, an atomic bomb had been tested. Riar claimed he had, quote, split the atom. Public reactions were extreme. Riar got 50,000 fan letters thanking him for the invention, mostly from men, but in some countries, shocked lawmakers instated bikini bans. Riar happily embraced the controversy. In ads, he said bikinis were small enough to be, quote, pulled through a wedding ring. Soon, the anti-bikini lobby collapsed as the suit became more popular on beaches all over Europe and finally, in 1960, in the USA. The same year, singer Brian Hyland scored a number one hit about a girl too embarrassed to be seen in one. It was an itchy, bitchy, teeny, weeny, yellow polka dot bikini, so in the locker she so that's the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. I'm speaking with Thibaut Gancet, bar manager at La Famille in Paris, the town where the bikini first debuted. Thibaut, you heard the history. What drink did it inspire you to make? So the bikini, I wanted to do something related to the island where the name came from. Oh, the bikini atoll. Exactly. Where they dropped the nuclear bomb. Yeah. So uh, I made the drink in two parts, one representing the bikini and the other one representing the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> the bikini one being in, on top of the other one. So you're actually going to serve these drinks one on yeah. top of the other one. Yeah, because when you drink it, you just can take the first one on top of it and pour it in the other one. Oh, all right. So you start with what? You start with what's the bottom? With, with the bottom, we start with the round glass. A round glass. We put some rum, some spicy rum. Okay. A little bit of spiced sugar that I made with some vanilla and uh, cinnamon. Oh man, that sounds delicious. And a little bit of uh, lemongrass. Lemongrass? Yeah. So it'll give it some tang. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I wanted something really strong to remind the bomb. Oh yeah, kind of radioactive almost in yeah. the mouth. <laughs> and in the glass, I uh, used nitrogen, liquid nitrogen, to make some smoke coming out, out of the glass <laughs> to represent the bomb. Just for anybody who has, you know, liquid nitrogen hanging around their kitchen. Yeah, because we, we use a lot of it at, uh, at the bar I'm working, actually. <laughs> really? So it basically looks like a rock concert constantly at your bar. <laughs> That's fun. So, all right, so that's in the bottom glass. What's in the top glass? Then in the other one, I prepared something more fruity, more uh, remind the bikini, like the beach, with fresh fruits and a different herb. Okay, so something refreshing and sweet. Yeah, so you got some fresh apple, a little bit of cranberry juice, basil, and a little bit of uh, liquor from, made from elderflower. Oh, elderflower liquor, so um, like Saint-Germain. Okay. That's the one, yeah. That's great. So you serve that on top of the bottom glass, sort of like the bikini trumping the bomb. Exactly. The bikini wins. (laughs) And Brendan, last year, Time Magazine named Louis Rayard one of the most iconic fashion designers ever. Oh, yeah. Which is ironic because basically what he did was remove all fabric from a woman's body. (laughs) That's his design. So if I design a unicycle, does that make me a great car designer? I I think it does. (laughs) It's like the bikini of vehicles. Brilliant. 
Uh, folks, you'll find all our drink recipes on our minimalist website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is filmmaker Lucy Walker. She's earned two Oscar nominations for her documentary work. Her new movie premieres this week. Here she is to tell us about it and her list, which, we should note, does contain movie spoilers. Hi, my name is Lucy Walker, and I produced and directed The Crash Reel. The film follows a remarkable American snowboarder, Kevin Pierce. Kevin was considered the only rival who could touch Sean White, the Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps of snowboarding. Kevin really was trying to learn this new class of tricks called the double corks. And when training one morning, a trick went just very slightly wrong, and he missed his edge and landed right on his forehead. Miraculously, Kevin did come out of his coma, just wants to get back to snowboarding, but doctors say that if he hits his head again, he could die. So it got me thinking about other complicated comebacks. I've got three of them that I'd love to talk about. Number one, I'm thinking about Darren Aronofsky's incredible movie, The Wrestler. So we have over-the-hill wrestler Randy the Ram, played by Mickey Rourke, who himself, of course, was uh, having quite the comeback with this movie. Randy is down on his luck, has a heart attack because of all these steroids and all this terrible training. And the doctors say, you can't do this anymore or you will have a heart attack and die. And yet he has a 20-year anniversary match with the Ayatollah, this big match, and he's determined to get back in shape to do that. It's like they shoot horses, don't they? You're watching this athlete who you just wish wasn't suffering so much. You're not quite sure what to admire anymore. The only ones who are going to tell me when I'm through doing my thing is you people here. And there's one scene I've never forgotten. This unbelievable ending. It's kind of like the Sopranos ending, but way better, if you ask me. Randy goes for his signature move which is where he sort of leaps uh, from on top. And as he does this kind of Christ-like, arms outstretched leap, midair, at once sort of victorious and vulnerable, we cut to the credits. And you're just left there with this massive sort of question. It's still reverberating for me, I must say. I, I never stop thinking about it. So very current right now, at least here in New York, is the Anthony Weiner complicated comeback story question mark he was on the fast track to political glory and then crashed all the way to the bottom a link to a lewd photo was sent out early saturday morning on congressman anthony weiner's twitter account and lied i did not send that tweet and the whole thing was just so incredibly vividly disappointing i'm here today to again apologize for the personal mistakes i have made and the embarrassment i have caused and here we are two years later where he is tied in first place in the polls to be the mayor of New York City. The big thing about the comeback, I think, that screams at me, which is very like the Kevin Pierce story, is you're watching him and thinking, is this a good idea? Hasn't your family been through enough? And you sort of want to shake him. Resiliency and determination, passion, ambition, we value these things. And yet here's the situation that takes that hypothesis and really starts to make it wobble before our very eyes. I mean, is this ambition, is it a good thing? 
And for my third complicated comeback, Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder's amazing 1950 noir. This is the story of Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, who is a silent movie star, now aged 50, which was considered so past it. And she's dreaming of her comeback. Only asking, I didn't know you were planning a comeback. I hate that word. It's a return. A return to the millions of people who've never forgiven me for deserting the screen. Fair enough. I think there's a fabulous dramatic irony in Sunset Boulevard. We know too much. We know no matter how many beauty treatments she goes off and and does, she's no longer a starlet. But I guess you do, it, it still plays with you. It still catches you up. You're still wondering, is it possible? You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. You want that dream to come through. No matter how far out of reach it seems to you, it makes you very complicit as a spectator. And I think that's a really thought-provoking place to be. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. The guest list from documentarian Lucy Walker. Her film The Crash Reel premieres Monday night on HBO and hits theaters right before the Winter Olympics. And we'll take a quick break, but coming up... Comedian Tignataro recalls a really bad day. And then I was like, oh, I've been brutally murdered. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Later, comic Tignataro tells us about her wisdom teeth and the unwise actions they inspired. And we learn why rock band Big Star was poorly named. But first, it's time for our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's writer Chuck Klosterman. His funny and perceptive pop culture essays have appeared everywhere from Spin Magazine to the high-minded sports journal Grantland. He writes the Ethicist column for the New York Times Magazine. He also writes novels, including 2011's The Visible Man. His new nonfiction book is called I Wear the Black Hat, in which he struggles to understand famous villains, both real and fictional. One of the book's contentions is that a true villain, quote, knows the most, but cares the least. When we spoke this week, I asked Chuck for an example. Well, you know, this is somebody who's not in the book, but I I, I wish it was because it's just the most idealized example. I was watching this documentary on Lee Atwater, the architect of the Republican Party for the 70s and 80s and the early 90s. And as sort of a political machine maker, he's almost unparalleled. He seemed to understand politics organically, you know. But he became a Republican arbitrarily. Mm. He was a young man interested in politics and he was like, I got to pick a side and I got to just look for whatever side I have the most potential for traction. It seemed like it was the Republicans. So that's what he did. Mm. That's the clear example of what I'm talking about. The villain is the person who has the most effortless ability to sort of understand the world and manipulate other people. He knew the most about how politics work and and sort of the weaknesses of human nature, but he cared the least. It had nothing to do with his political ideology. Now, of course, a couple of chapters after this, you offer the caveat, which is that you can know the most and care the least. But if you're polite and charming, like con men in movies like The Sting, you can actually be seen as a hero in this gray area. Of all of the villains that you examined, which was the hardest to kind of affix a rule to? Like their cultural status as a villain you just found confusing or the hardest to explain? Well, it depends how you look at it. I mean, if you start from this premise that the villain is the person who knows the most and cares the least, the big obstruction is Hitler. 
Really? Hitler did not know the most. He, in fact, was confused about almost everything and not just the idea of the strength of the Aryan race, but like, <laughs> do you start a land war in Russia in winter? He didn't know anything, <laughs> but he certainly cared the most. He cared the most about these arcane things. He cared about how his countrymen performed in the Olympics as a reflection of their racial superiority. So, you know, it doesn't work to say, like, this is the rule for all people. It's not really a unifying field theory. But it works a lot. Because you're not going to go on record as saying Hitler is not a villain. Yeah. You know, and that was, you know, I almost, I didn't want to write about Hitler. I I kind of, in much of this book, I have take a very sympathetic view toward people who are framed as villains. I think that, you know, Mm. if you're going to be a cultural critic and you're going to talk about a problematic figure, the first thing you need to do is kind of get inside their mind. Almost like actors who play villains. Yes. But I didn't want to be in this position where people were like, uh, oh, so I guess this guy wrote this book that's sympathetic toward villains. I can't wait for the Hitler (laughs) chapter. Like, I didn't want that. But so many people... You know, when I said I wasn't writing about Hitler, they were first just aghast. They were like, well, you have to. And then yeah. when I did, they were like, are you sure you should have done this? I mean, the problem <laughs> with writing about Hitler is you have to be interesting without being too interesting. You see mm. that you kind of need to reinforce our pre-existing view of Hitler because the main role he plays socially now is like a placeholder for evil. And we need to think about him in a real personal way. I, I want to pivot to talking a little bit about you. It is, it's interesting to me that so much of your work actually deals with examining gray areas or, or inexplicable cultural developments. Because when I describe to people why you are fun to talk to, I always say that it's because you seem to have extremely strong opinions about even the most totally irrelevant things. How do you reconcile those two sides of yourself? On one hand, you have very strong opinions. On the other hand, you kind of want to go to places where you could land on either side of an issue. I think to me there's a a difference between having an opinion and believing your opinion is correct. <laughs> I definitely I mean if you ask me about a band or a film, I will yeah. certainly have an opinion, but I don't have much certitude about that because I have a growing suspicion that we just don't have the ability to control what we think and what we feel. The more I'm mature, you know, I really feel that I don't. The world is a much more confusing place to me at 41 than it was at 21. Yeah, at one point in the book, you actually examine your youthful ability to deeply hate certain rock bands. Yes. Which you now say you, you no longer have the ability to do. Well, it's, you know, I, I was a rock critic uh, for many, many years. And so much of a rock critic's identity is sort of what they are opposed to. And at one point in my life, around 2003, the band I was talking about was the Eagles. And I realized that my hatred of the Eagles was performative. You know, if I didn't like the music of the Eagles, I could just not listen to them. They're not sanctioned by the state. You don't have to listen. You know, so if you, when you really hate an artist, what it basically means is I'm consciously engaging with it so I can reflect my distaste to other people and have them understand something about me. So the strong opinion you thought you held about the Eagles, you, you realized was just a big put on. Yeah, it, but, but here's the thing that's disturbing. That realization, once you reach the realization that so much of our vitriol toward cultural artifacts is false. You start wondering, well, how am I going to be a critic? (laughs) That's rough. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, But look, we have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. And the first one, you've been on the show before, so I hesitate to ask this, but it's what question, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, would you least like to be asked? And I'm assuming since I've asked it to you a number of times, it's that question at this point. I, that, 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 I didn't even remember. Now that you say it, I remember the question. But uh, 
What would I not want to be asked, you know, to explain what I meant by something that I wrote? Because, well, if I could just really clearly explain exactly what I meant, that's what I would have written. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like I'm writing about things that are difficult because I'm, I'm consciously picking things that are difficult, you know? All right. Well, here's, here's the second question. Tell us something that we don't know. Um, I don't think people know that I'm a pretty good juggler. <laughs> Because really? there's no opportunity to really juggle in day-to-day life. You know, you, you've you got to be somewhere where it's kind of a freewheeling scene and you need to have three of something. You know, I, I just – I think it's such a great metaphor for life because it seems like three balls are in the air at the same time. But really there's just one ball in the air. And if you can create that illusion that you're doing three things and you're really doing one thing, that's success. And Brendan, a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Firstly, I went and looked at a juggling video and I paused it. And in fact, sometimes there are two balls in the air. Okay. And the second is that <laughs> Chuck has written that he occasionally lies in interviews. Oh, you know? so you think he, that he might not be a juggler. I'm just saying I should have asked him to demonstrate his abilities. Okay. But did you really pause a juggling video? What? I'm thorough. <laughs> <laughs> To eavesdrop. Last August, comedian Tig Notaro performed a live set that was held as the standout stand-up show of the year. This week, it will be released as an album. Today, we overhear a new story from Tig about a particularly rude awakening. Several years ago, I had four impacted wisdom teeth that needed to be surgically removed. It was going to take place at a hospital, and I needed somebody to sign me in and then drive me home because I was going to be put under. The woman that I was dating at the time didn't want to take a day off from work, so she agreed to sign me in and then leave. (laughs) That's uh, true love. So I had my wisdom teeth removed, and then when they moved me from the gurney, I woke up prematurely. I was completely on drugs and out of my mind. I was scared that they were going to notice the person that signed me in was not there. And um, so I I realized, like, i got to get out of there. I just bolted out of the hospital doing that crooked type of run where everything is just slanted. I got out to my car, drove off with my eyes basically wanting to shut came to the first red light and I was awoken when I rear-ended the car in front of me. This guy came up to my window just, of course, outraged. There was no damage done, but he was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah. Like thinking, yeah, what's your problem, buddy? Can a woman get a little shut-eye between traffic lights here? By the time I got home, I was in so much pain that I needed to get back to the hospital. My friends Beth and Leslie lived in the apartment below me, so I went to knock on their door, and there was no answer, and I was just banging, just, Leslie, because I saw Leslie's car parked in the back. She didn't answer, 
So I was lying on the patio trying to peek into the bottom of the window of the door just to see if she was home because in my head I was making up that she knew I was in pain and was refusing to help me. I'm lying there banging, Lily, Lily, no response. So I go down off the balcony where I run into this woman. She's sunbathing. I come around the corner. She's like, oh, my God. And I was like, hi. Uh, and I was pointing up to the building. I said, do you know Beth and Leslie? And she said, no. And I said, if you see Beth and Leslie, they live in that apartment. And will you tell them that Tig needs to go to the hospital? And she was just holding her chest, staring at me in shock. Just, she just said, yeah. And I said, thank you. And I went back around. I thought I'd try and knock on the door again. And when I walked up to the apartment this time, I saw a trail of blood leading to their door. And I was like, oh my gosh. Beth and Leslie have been murdered in a tiny pool of blood. I bang on the door again this time, just, Leslie! And this time she opens the door. And then she was just like, oh my God! And uh, I was like, oh, you know, and, and then she pointed out that I was just <laughs> covered in blood. And then I was like, oh, that's my blood. I've been brutally murdered in my mouth. And I kept reflecting back the guy I rear-ended. That's why he was like, are you okay? I'm sure I had blood dripping out of my mouth. And then the sunbather, I can't believe she wasn't like, can I take you to the hospital? <laughs> now... I'm short four teeth in my mouth and one girlfriend. Comedian Tig Notaro, her stand-up set called Live comes out in an extended CD edition this week with part of the proceeds benefiting cancer-related charities. And you're not hallucinating. You're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. It's time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where an expert schools us in a dinner party-worthy topic. Today our subject is legendary Memphis band Big Star. Rolling Stone magazine once called them one of the most mythic and influential cult acts in all of rock and roll. Our expert is Drew Nicola. He directed a new documentary about the band called Big Star, Nothing Can Hurt Me. But first, let's hear some of Big Star's music. So Big Star kind of had a Lennon-McCartney thing going on. They're this, these young guys from Memphis, Tennessee. Initially, there were two main songwriters, Alex Chilton, who was a local kid who had become a national success at a young age as the singer of The Box Tops. They had that hit song, The Letter. And then there's Chris Bell, who's a, another local, talented, ambitious musician, maybe a bit mercurial, not as popular. How did their different backgrounds and personalities figure into the music that they made together? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the basis of it, really, when you think about these two guys, Alex having had fame but having not felt it was deserved. Mm -hmm. It was his first time on the mic. He didn't know how to play any instruments 
and he was propelled into you know the spotlight. This is his first band, the Box Tops. The Box that, Tops, that he, and he yeah. was 19 years old when he was picked to sing for them. He right? was 16, 16, very young. So he felt, I think, a little uncool and undeserving of the fame. And as far as being 16, he missed out on his childhood in a way. And he t- he talked about later on in Bump magazine that you know when he was writing a lot of those sentimental songs they were an attempt to sort of recapture what he thought was youth Won't you let me walk you home from school Won't you let me meet you at the And then Chris was daydreaming in his bedroom looking at his Who posters, you know, (laughs) and just kind of scheming and figuring out how am I going to make the ultimate rock group. And he knew he was a good player. He had access to this studio much in the same way that the Beatles did. I mean, probably more in a way, if you think about the Beatles in the early days, they had guys in lab coats that would turn the knobs for them. But in Big Star's case, they recorded themselves in a in a beautiful studio. It was called Ardent. So they had talent, ambition, access to state-of-the-art equipment. What happened? How come Big Star never became a household name? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. Um, with the first record, it was that Stax wasn't equipped to be distributing rock records. They they had re- relationships with mom-and-pop record stores um, in black neighborhoods. Stax was Big Star's label, but it was primarily a soul music label, and Big Star was their first rock and roll act. Yeah, so the promo guys didn't really know what to do with Big Star. Uh, and with the second record, it had to do with what seemed to be a great idea. It was going to be that Columbia was going to distribute Stax, and then in the, they would have gotten that stuff into you know big box retail outlets. But what happened there was Clive Davis, who's hugely known in the music world, um, was the one who brokered that deal, and then he uh, was fired. So, you know, the whole thing kind of fell apart after that. And also the music itself, right? It's poppy and accessible and beautiful, but it's a little idiosyncratic and has some kind of dark undercurrents that I think weren't necessarily radio-friendly or, or something people were used to hearing. That's what I was interested in, is is I just believe that there was... It was in their DNA to fail, um, and mm. it made they're you know the ultimate beautiful losers, and <laughs> almost like the patron saint band of any rock act that wasn't on the radio. They're credited with creating alt rock, for lack of a better word, college rock like REM and their placements. You know, there there were some qualities to their music, right? That spoke to those people. It wasn't just their persona. Right. There was kind of a a personal uh, approach to their songwriting that might have more to do with like Neil Young or Joni Mitchell in the 70s, but Mm. that stuff was real mellow stuff. And instead they had this sort of like who rapper. Yeah. Um, Alexis Taylor from Hot Chip was saying there's this melancholy and this exuberance at the same time. And that's a really powerful combination that kind of keeps you listening. It's, it's, it's 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 a mixed message in the songs, and, and that right there renders you not commercial. Big Star are revered among rock critics, who are a pretty geeky, intense tribe. And I'm wondering if, as a director, you were intimidated to take on a band that means so much to such a, such a vocal group. Thank God I won most of them over, but I was getting a lot of shade from people <laughs> in the beginning. Like, who are you to touch Big Star? Oh, yeah, it was, I, it was, too, it was too sacred for a lot of people. A lot of people yeah. said that they didn't want to be involved, and I think <laughs> maybe later once they were like, oh, it's pretty good, okay, now I'm... Yeah. And also just satisfying the hardcore fans and the 
the people that were not familiar with Big Star, and that's still kind of a problem. I, I, during Q and A's, I usually make sure to tell them that I'm doing 70 minutes of DVD extras, so try to satisfy <laughs> everyone. So the geeks can go further. Yeah. Drew DiNicola, his new documentary about Big Star is called Nothing Can Hurt Me. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, metal band Deaf Heaven suggests some tunes for a very loud dinner party. We unwrap stuff you might not know about McDonald's. And music legend Herb Alpert recalls the frugality of Frank Sinatra. He would reel off, you know, $1,000 bills. Like boom, 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 boom. When the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner parties. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And I'm Rico Galliano. Later we learn about the Fresh Wars. Yes. They do not involve 80s hip-hop. No. And red-hot San Francisco-based metal band Deaf Heaven suggests songs to play at your next somewhat raucous gathering. But first, it is time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Herb Alpert. With the Tijuana Brass, he helped shape the sound of the last half century. He's also the A in the A&M Records label, and he produced everyone from the Carpenters to Janet Jackson. He's had eight Grammy Awards, 14 platinum albums, and 15 gold records to his name. That just seems heavy. That seems like a lot lot of hardware. Okay. And just this week, he was awarded the National Medal of Arts. And Herb, welcome. Oh, thanks so much for that introduction. Yeah, it's a a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, And you're not just resting on your laurels. This Wednesday, uh, you and your wife, Lonnie Hall, are playing the Hollywood Bowl. And you're playing in the same bill as Brazilian band leader Sergio Mendes. Oh, yeah. I love Sergio. I mean, if it wasn't for Sergio, I wouldn't uh, be with my wife, Lonnie. Really? Lonnie was the lead singer with Sergio in 1966. Mm. What actually attracted you so much to Latin music? Because your background is Eastern European, right? Well, I'm up for anything that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) But you had a formative experience at a bullfight, is my understanding. Oh, I I saw many bullfights. Each year I would go down to Tijuana, and uh, I was kind of enamored with that whole event. And also there was this brass band in the stands, a band that would introduce each event in in the fights, you know, like ba-da, ba-da-ba-da-da-da-da-dee. And I try to uh, represent that in, in a song. The Lonely Bull, after that song became a huge hit, I got a, a letter from this lady in Germany who thanked me for taking her on a vicarious trip to Tijuana, <laughs> which was a real eye It was a pivotal moment for me because then I realized, man, I want to make you know visual music. What year did The Lonely Bull come out? Actually? That was 1962, and it was the first song that we released on A&M Records. And you played everything. Well, um, when I heard Les Paul, maybe 1958 or 59. The guitarist. He was overdubbing his guitar, came up with this kind of luscious sound. Yeah. And I tried doing that in my little studio at home. I had two tape machines, so I went from one tape machine to the other and back and forth. And I came up with the sound that was, uh, you know, the genesis of the Tijuana Brass sound. You were doing it with trumpets instead of guitar. Exactly. The first several albums were just me on top of myself. <laughs> and at that point, cloning technology wasn't at, at a point where you could clone yourself 10 times. Yeah. You know, in the old days when, when it was like slim pickings and we were trying to get musicians for 10 $15 a piece, there was one 
violin player in town, people used to overdub them like eight, ten times. So it sounded like a whole section. <laughs> to make an orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Right. Tricks of the trade. Well, look, you've navigated countless songs of the charts. Let us see if you can help our listeners navigate their etiquette dilemmas. You ready for these? Sure. All right. This is from Ron in Sudden Valley, Washington. He asks, can you please rule once and for all on the etiquette of spit valves? We're assuming that has something to do with trumpets. Well, actually, when I started playing, and this is like a whole other area here, but Go. my grammar school, there was like a music appreciation class, and there was a room filled with various instruments. So I picked up the trumpet and, and blew some hot air into it, and no sound came out. <laughs> and it, w it, it took a while for me to realize that you don't blow into the instrument, you buzz into the instrument mm. like... You make that type of sound into it. Speaking of etiquette. So with that sound comes a little spittle, and then that valve releases the uh, saliva. It seems like it could get sloppy quick. That, yeah. that definitely is a problem. So, I mean, you, you look for the closest rug, and if you can't find that, do the best you can. Really? <laughs> you have to hire somebody to mop it up. Uh, oh, man. So I guess what we're learning is there really isn't any etiquette, Ron. And <laughs> right. Just pay someone to follow you around with the bucket. <laughs> All right. This question comes from JR in L.A. JR writes... Occasionally, one of my friends will ask me what I think of pieces in his modern art collection. I get the impression that he wants me to love them. How do I handle this if I'm not of the same mind? He did not make the pieces. He collects them. Mm. Well, I think to really appreciate art, you have to stop thinking. You know, you can't stand in front of a Jackson Pollock painting and try to figure out what he was trying to say. You either feel it or you don't. And if you don't feel it, okay, too. And we should say this is an appropriate question for you because you are yourself a modern artist. Well, I'm an abstract painter and, and sculptor. In the 60s, when the Tijuana Brass uh, and I were traveling around the world, I used to go to museums and and I'd see a painting that was like a deep black painting with a purple dot or a <laughs> purple painting with a black dot in it. And I think like, well, let yeah. me try that. I think I can handle that one. <laughs> it was purely practical. When I got home, I, I started, you know, moving paint around. I mean, I was doing it like a monkey. I was just squirting, you know, colors around the canvas. Then I got intrigued with, you know, the whole thing. And I started, you know, learning more about it. And I had a heck of a lot of fun. So it sounds like you're suggesting to just, you know, not try to analyze it and just go with your emotion. Well, I think all, I think all art is that way. You, you know, with A&M, there was no way you could talk somebody into liking a particular song. You say, hey, man, this is a, a hit single. And you play it for somebody and they're staring at a wall. <laughs> but sometimes, you know, you need to be exposed to that. I remember the first time I heard Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash. I think, geez, that's, that's a kind of a strange... Uh, <laughs> concept, you know? And then mm -hmm. the more I heard them, there was there's something about the intent. If the mm -hmm. intent is right and you're and you're doing it for the right reasons, it, it can resonate. So the advice for JR I guess would be you don't have to like the art, but keep trying? Well, don't think so hard. You know, be loose about it. All right, here's our final question. We asked this of all our etiquette guests. What was the most memorable get together you have ever been to? Who, what, where, details please? Well, I'll tell you, I did have a moment with Sinatra, actually. Oh, man. Staying at his home, and he was to open at Caesar's Palace. We flew to Caesar's Palace for the opening. After the show, he asked me if I wanted to play uh, Bach Rock with him. Huh. And I, I didn't know how to play the game. I said, I'll go with you, but I don't really know how to play. Within 20 minutes, he won around $25,000. And each time he won... He would go back to his daughter, reel off with, you know, $1,000 bills, like boom, 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 you know, like, and she had this handful, it looked like a bowling ball in her hands of, of $100 bills, and, and he got up and just kind of left, you know, and she looked at me and says, uh, 
Herbie, take some of this and go gamble. I said, you want me to take a quarter pound of it or a half a pound? What are you talking about? <laughs> and so I realized at that point, man, I want money to mean something to me. You know, I, I don't want to ever get in that place yeah. where it's just not important. Herb Alpert, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, often in this segment we talk about food trends, you know. Right. Dishes and techniques on the vanguard of food culture that eventually spread. Sure. Things like fermentation, cronuts. Pigtails would be Pigtails is the story we once did, though I think they have limited appeal. Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> but we usually overlook fast food, and let's face it, when a company like McDonald's does something new, based on numbers alone, it is a new trend. Okay. And the latest example of this is something McDonald's just added to the menu. The, the McPigtail. No. It's delicious. Not yet. They haven't done that Behind yet. Behind the times. They added the McWrap, which is basically a tortilla filled with chicken, lettuce, tomato, spring greens, and for the first time in the company's history, fresh cucumbers. That's the first time? They have pickles, but no cucumbers. I guess that's right. Susan Burfield's a writer for Business Week. She just wrote a story on McWraps. When I met with her this week, she told me about the ripple effects of McDonald's decision to choose cucumbers. This year, they're going to use about 6 million pounds of these cucumbers. And that's not even for a full year of sales, right? The McWrap was launched in April. So the suppliers are going to be supplying McDonald's with probably, you know, millions and millions of pounds of cucumbers. So that's great for cucumber farmers and the entire cucumber species. Yes. What are some other numbers that demonstrate the scope of McDonald's these days? It is um, the biggest restaurant chain in the world by sales. 69 million people eat at McDonald's every day. Thank goodness. And in the U.S., more people went to McDonald's than to any other store of any other kind. Well, it sounds like things are going well, so why the McRap? You know, McDonald's is looking ahead, and they see that the younger um, generation, they call them millennials, but you could say people in their 20s, okay. want food that is fresh or seems fresh, that's healthy or seems healthy. Yeah, I like this part. You talk about the fresh wars. Yeah. Is this like, a, is this like the cola wars? It is, is it? <laughs> Tell me about the fresh this is wars. It. You know, There's a lot of chains that are doing really well, Mm. and some of them, Mm. like Chipotle, make a show of making the food in front of you. Okay. You get to order. You get to pick. McDonald's obviously is not set up that way. Yeah. The opposite. You just point and say, number four. <laughs> I want that, and I want three of them, and I want it in a minute. Yeah. And then I'm going to go eat it in my car. Yeah. Right? Because yes. 65% of McDonald's customers order through the drive through So it's an entirely different mindset, and it was set up to be an entirely different thing. But McDonald's does evolve, right? I mean, they sell salads. They sell yogurt. So basically what you're saying is it wasn't like a chef was like, mm, I think we need a chicken wrap on the menu. No, no, it wasn't. (laughs) You know, they are very, very careful. And that's because of their size. You know, when something goes wrong, it goes wrong in a very big way. And when something goes right, it goes right in a very big way. Before we go any further... I brought a McRap. <laughs> now, you and I know that we're, we're recording this interview in the morning, so they don't sell McRaps in the morning. How'd you get it? I got this yesterday, leaving the office. I got two of them so I could eat one because I, I do my due gone. diligence. Right. Yes. All right. Um, What'd you look think? At, what did I think? I thought it was meh. Yeah. There was nothing really too flavorful about it. But I will tell you, as we look at this, this container is super cool. This It looks like a mini um, poster tube. Yeah. With with like a cardboard zipper. Yeah. What's the story behind this? I'm going to open it just so we can. There you go. McDonald's. Go ahead. Yeah. 
is also very excited about that packaging. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's better than what's in it. Yeah, that was developed in Austria. Yep. Wow. And um, in about 2009. And I think that was one of the reasons McDonald's in the U.S. thought that they could make a go of it. Because when they saw that packaging, they're like, that is kind of fun. Also, according to your article, this packaging was designed to fit into a car cup holder. Absolutely. So you could eat this while driving your SUV, texting... Yeah. And you can just put that in your cup holder without compromising the integrity of your wrap. That is the point. As we said, McDonald's, 65% of their customers order in the drive-thru. And then we presume they eat in the car, right? So the more portable, and if you can eat it with one hand, all the better. Yeah. Right? And guess what? You can't do that with Chipotle. Oh, interesting. Don't think McDonald's didn't think about that. So they obviously thought long and hard about this product. How's it doing? You know, McDonald's doesn't often um, give the sales for specific items. Okay. And I say often because the assumption among people who pay real close attention to McDonald's and their sales figures is that if it were doing extraordinarily well, McDonald's would want to say so. Sure. Right? You know, salads have been on the menu at McDonald's for years, but the CEO recently told everyone salads only account for about 2% of McDonald's sales. Oh, my goodness. So... You know, McDonald's keeps them on the menu. They're never going to get rid of salads. But, you know, they're selling fewer kinds of salads. So a veggie-laden wrap might not help their bottom line. But as you explain in your article, even if the McWrap fails as a food item, it can still succeed as a marketing tool. It has a symbolic value. If McDonald's is offering something healthier and consumers don't choose that, you still pick a Big Mac and fries, even though you could have the grilled McWrap, then... People don't blame McDonald's. It's very clever. It inoculates them from criticism that they don't have healthy options. It's there. You made a, we won't say bad choice, you made a different (laughs) choice. (laughs) So even if this goes the way of the Arch Deluxe, the McHot Dog, and some of these other classics, it'll maybe help their McImage. I think so. I think that's what they're hoping. Girl, you deserve the best in life. So tonight I'm going to treat you right. Girl, I hope you have an appetite Cause we're going to McDonald's This guy is singing about the sweetest date ever. Yeah, it's man. Very nice. One soda, two straws. Very romantic. And they don't... Save money. Yeah, and they don't even have to leave their car. <laughs> you can it's just convenient. put a candle in the other cup holder. Romance. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've learned some manners, unwrapped some food. One thing remains for a perfect dinner party, some music to play. For that, we turn to Deaf Heaven, naturally. Yeah. Their unusual blend of screaming heavy metal and shoegaze music has made them one of this year's most talked about bands. Their latest album, Sunbather, received a coveted Best New Music designation from music blog Pitchfork. Mm. Here they are to suggest some tunes from other musicians. Hi, I'm George. I'm Carrie. And we're in Deaf Heaven. The first track that we're going to pick is a band from El Paso called At The Drive-In. We're going to play Initiation, which is off of their first record, Acrobatic Tenement. Every smart DJ begins tiny and ends big, so these are people walking in or sitting them down. It's familiar enough, but it's also like cool to those who aren't familiar with it. Yeah, it's it's more in the background. It's not yet a focal point. The lyrical content is choice. It's very cool. It kind of has eerie overtones the whole way. It's relatively about a fan, and he's obsessed with this woman 
It's pretty much just a, a song about like extreme obsession. The next uh, track would be Skull Eyes from True Widow. A lot of people call it stone gaze. Like a stonery, shoegazy thing. It's just kind of like grungy, sort of heavy stuff, but it's got a really cool female vocal, a lot of melodies, and the guitar work is really interesting. This is like after a couple drinks like in. After people have been drinking wine and like. It's starting to get wavy. It's starting to get yeah, a little bit sexy. Yeah, we're getting kind of sexy. We're getting we're getting wavy. And then we move from wine. Probably to vodka. Yeah. And then what happens? We drop the next song. Mm -hmm. So I type the text to a girl I used to see, saying that I chose this cutie pie with whom I want to be. UGK's International Players Anthem. Featuring Outkast. Mm -hmm. It starts off with Andre, Andre 3000, and he's got this sweet first verse where he just talks about how he's giving up being a player and all this stuff to get married. Now hurry, hurry, go on to the altar. I know you ain't a pimp, but pimp, remember what I taught you. Keep your heart, three stacks. Keep your heart. And then uh, a snare hits and like an 808 bass drops. It's a track that has been near and dear to us for years now. Yeah. <laughs> I think at every function that we've ever been a part of, this eventually gets played. Gets played like saying around like midnight. It's always a peak yeah. hour. And then this drops and uh, it shuts it down. And it shuts it down always. If we were to play any Deaf Heaven song at a dinner party, we would definitely end it out with Sunbather. Has a big beginning, but more importantly, a very dancey end. Yeah, there's a we dance on stage to the clean part of this. Yeah, to the clean break. It's melodic enough to keep people's attention, and at the end of it, you get to swerve. dinner party soundtrack from George Clark and Carrie McCoy of the band Deaf Heaven. They are on tour now in support of their new album Sunbather, and that is the dinner party download for this week. Our staff includes assistant producer Jackson Musker, our interns are James Delahousie, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin, Peter Clowney is our executive producer, thanks also this week for engineering help from Brendan Willard and Jeff Peters. We'd also like to extend a hearty hello, hello. to our new listeners on WFDD in North Carolina, WOSU in Columbus, Ohio, WPLN in Nashville, Tennessee, and throughout Connecticut on Connecticut. Connecticut Public Radio. Bon appétit.